Welcome to Telltales, an investing podcast hosted by Hunt Lawrence and Mike Nicoletti. As a reminder, nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you. I went through oil in some detail, and I promised to go through gas this week, natural gas. Just to recapitulate on oil, there will be some decline in demand from battery cars on a worldwide basis. But that is the key question. Is the demand going to go down faster than the supply? Or is the different things that motion here going to cause supply to go down. And in the United States, we peaked at 13 million barrels a day and the, the, the bottom was 11 million barrels a day. And it's back to around 11.7 or 11.8. All companies are being very disciplined, but at these prices, even if you're only spending two thirds of your cash flow on your cap bag, two thirds of cash flow at, at $90 is a lot more than two thirds of cash flow at 50. The additional capital spending will, U.S. production will, I think, continue to inch up. It apparently isn't happening in a way that would cause the Saudis to worry about market share. And then, of course, Russia is a big question mark. If the U.S. and the European Union were serious about sanctions, the oil market would get very tight. Probably the backwardation would become more. So I, at least initially, Unless Russia starts to use their forces in Belarus to make a run for the capital of Kiev, I, I don't see the really strict sanctions that would have moving oil. In other words, pulling the ability to do business from all Russian banks rather than just three Russian banks. Unless that happens, I, I don't think this is going to have that much impact on the availability of oil supply. And keep in mind, the Biden administration already is in trouble on the price of gasoline. So they're not going to put those more severe sanctions on unless they really have to. Switching over to natural gas production at the middle of 21 was around 90, 90 uh, bees a day, 90 billion cubic feet a day. And the price got pretty strong. And the price of LNG export got pretty strong, both in Asia and in Europe. And is troublesome because uh, by the time we got to September, October, production had gone from 90 up to 94. The two places, the Marcellus, which is the largest production area, 35 bees a day, was flat. But the increase was coming from the Haynesville, which is closer to LNG exports, so more capital was getting spent there. And from associated gas from the Permian, I think 20 bees from there, and I think the so the hate bill now is at around 13 or 14 bees as compared to 35 bees from the Marcellus and the Utica. The Haynesville, I think, will flatten out. The more troublesome thing is, at this point is associated gas from the Permian. Two things are going on here that at $80, $90 oil, the price of gas 
And the, this was all produced in association with the oil. So the price of gas doesn't matter. And you're not allowed to flare the gas. So the gas will come from the Permian. And I'm going to get, I don't want to be too precise about it, but I think the amount of gas coming from the Permian, the 20, by this time next year will be 23 or 4. So now there is, there are some parts of where the staff production, where it's declining. Think South Texas, although EOG has a new field down there, but think more traditional gas areas, maybe Oklahoma scoop stack, gas only, Barnett, which has fallen off. But I'm a little concerned on the supply side with natural gas. On the demand side, the increase in demand has come from LNG exports, which are currently running around 13 bees a day, which is more or less capacity. And that's up from, oh, I don't know, several years ago, effectively very little. So in the last 10 years, it's gone from zero to 13. It will continue to go up. With the very high LNG prices in Europe and Asia, there's huge arbitrage. Get your gas for $4 in Louisiana or Texas down from a few fillet in these LNG trains. So there's a liquid that probably costs about $2. And then transport to Europe's about a dollar. Transport to Asia's about $2. So four plus two plus one, that's $7. Even though as the LNG price in Europe is seasonal, obviously higher in the winter, and also higher when the Russians are withholding gas from Gazprom still, the price there is still 2022 as compared to $7 cost. So there's plenty of incentive, not only to run the LNG train at 100%, but also to continue to build new capacity. An LNG train in a greenfield probably takes three years to build, to add another, uh, a bunch of another train where there's already existing facilities like to go from two trains to three trains or three trains to four trains. Each train takes about 700 million a day. Yeah. Just adding a, a new train at the largest station path is an 18, 24 month thing. These are difficult things to build and, and then fairly difficult to put into operation through there. But at 13, this time next year will be 15. A year after that, it'll be 17. So there's pretty good increase there. Industrial use is around 20 or so. And residential use, you know, is obviously very seasonal, but it's 25 or so. The part of the demand equation that's worrisome is power. Now, what happens in power? Coal has been going down until this year or 21 when coal went up a little because natural gas prices were higher. Natural gas and new are stuck because no one's going to build any new capacity to speak of. And then existing nukes are being dropped. So they have been a fairly consistent 20% of our power supply in this country. It's not going to go up. If anything, it's going to go down a little. Renewables are, I don't know, 25% or something like that. Natural gas is 35%. Coal has been 30%. Coal will definitely trend down. My basic concern about that particular part of the demand slice for natural gas is as wind and solar come on, the incremental cost to run them is zero. 
They, there is no fuel cost. You're just trying to recover your capital. So they tend to run or to be bid in to the daily auction to see what it's going to run. When you're in the power business, what runs depends on these daily auctions. And wind and solar bid it in at practically nothing. They had auctions. So that's very difficult for a coal business. It's also not so easy for a gas business. So I'm hopeful that power demand slice of natural gas will stay flat on the 27, 28 beats a day. But I am a little worried. LNG will grow. Hopefully, discipline all the producers not spending, you know, more than two thirds of their cash flow will have repriced gas from 250, 260, whatever it's averaged the last couple of years, including 20, which was a difficult year, up to maybe 350. Now, gas for the coming year is around four. 350 sounds conservative, but it's in backwardation. So hopefully we get 350. Gas companies, if you're aware of the EQTs, the Enteros, the Southwesterns, the CNGs, the Ranges, the Chesapeake, most of them are largely Marcellus producers. Chesapeake does have some Hainesville. Southwestern has some Hainesville. The public gas companies all will do very well at 350. What everyone worries about is a reversion to 270 or 280 or something. If you buy off on the a concept that power will at least hold flat, you'll get a little growth in LNG and producers, other than that gas coming from the Permian will be, you know, reliable. I think you can anticipate 350 gas. So not a bad place to be, but I don't see any windfalls. I don't see 450 gas happening. And while gas is international because of LNG, you know, it, the LNG pricing is very seasonal and it's very capital intensive to make that LNG. So just because gas sells for $20 or $30 in Europe or China doesn't mean to say that's going to translate into much more than 350 to $4 back here. As far as interest rates go, as I've said the last couple of Wednesdays, I just can't make up my mind. Most economists say that with the reduced federal spending and a tighter Fed, both interest rates and having the balance sheet run off, your 10-year bond is liable to not get too much higher than it's 2%. Now, maybe it gets to 25 or something like that or 3 I don't understand. I, I certainly appreciate that there are people who do the full time and with where and for entities that are taking trading positions. It's not just giving advice. I just don't understand why the 10 year interest rate won't be like one or one and a half percent positive yield plus inflation rate, which would get you to four and a half to five. I think this is important because I think. It affects the valuation of everything, of real estate, of the stock market and whatnot. But if, if you counted up the economists or the, or, or the number of competent people with a view on this, it's definitely more like it'll top out at 3% rather than something like 5%, like a 3 or 4% inflation rate plus 1% real interest rate. I will admit that the way that the other places Central Bank, Japan has practically no interest rate and European Central Bank has not built up the way it is and European rates are just lower. Maybe the answer is that, that the rate of uh, the tenure rate in the U.S. will be lower because 
as someone who has got your dollars and your dollar rate is 2% is going to come and invest the money in the U.S. dollar treasury market at 3%. Maybe it's that simple. I hope sometime during 22, during in, in a couple minute commentary on interest rates to be more decisive than just say on the one hand this, on the other hand that, but I really just don't have a view or I don't have a view I have any confidence in. And with that, I've been peppering Mike about Intel as a turnaround. We've discussed this in prior Wednesday calls. The CEO, Pat Gelsinger, has been doing interviews and whatnot, and it's just such a heartwarming story. You just want to buy the stock. I don't know whether we mentioned last week, but he went to a community college. His family was grew up in the middle of Pennsylvania, and they were farmers, and in this interview, which may have been, I don't know, maybe it, it, it's accurate or not, but I mean, his recounting is that his, his father owned a farm, his uncle's owned farms, his father owned a farm. He never would have gone to the community college. Someone came to the community college looking for people to work in, you know, at Intel facilities, and he'd never been on an airplane before. He'd never gone to California. Gave him a ticket to go to California, interviews, and is hired by Intel. They allowed to go to night school. He finishes his degree at night school in four years, gets accepted into a PhD program at uh, Stanford. And the, the engineers, especially the head of Intel at that point, Andy Grove, have noticed him and went to him and said, we have a much better plan for you. We're going we're gonna to put you in, you know, help you run one of our projects, building new processors. So he never got the doctor from Stanford. Goes along, he progresses. So he's executive vice president, then he loses a tussle for who's going to run Intel. So he goes off and gets hired by Michael Dell, winds up running VMware, doing very well. Intel goes through two CEOs after they decided not to advance Gelsinger. Panic call the board. The first thing they did was to see if the uh, VM board would allow it to come on the Intel board. And he went to a couple of board meetings and about the third board meeting, a couple of the influential board members cornered him and said, well, this is your patriotic duty to rescue Intel. And he, I guess, had arranged some kind of succession plan at VMware. And so there's where he is. The story is so heartwarming. You, 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 you want to you at least own a little Intel. But now I'm going to turn over to Mike to tell you that despite the heartwarming story, I'm not saying substitute for NVIDIA. I'm saying in addition to NVIDIA. But Mike thinks, while it's a heartwarming story, there's still a lot of a lot of flaws in a projected turnaround at Intel. So over to Mike. I wanted to explain my thinking on Intel from a perspective of how computing is actually changing. Um, Intel is produces primarily, at least what we're familiar with, other CPUs. They do a lot of other stuff, but the bread and butter has been CPUs, and it made pretty much for most of their history up until now, the best CPUs available. What's happening is that there's a change going on within chip architecture and the way computers are built. It's because the way that we're computing is changing. Traditional software programs are written as a program that accesses stored memory and may change those variables. It's very well-defined and process-oriented, and that's why a central processing unit is very good at processing those instructions. However, what's changed 
in the last couple of years. And this is because of the kind of boom of the internet, the advent of cloud computing, and the ubiquitousness of data. We've got all of this information that it gets to the point where it's too much to process. And where artificial intelligence technologies get really exciting is that they're able to take a whole bunch of this data and derive meaningful output from it. So in this new world, these massive data sets are convoluted or modified through matrix multiplication, which is why GPUs are very essential to this process by AI models. And there's many layers, meaning the data is distributed across locations in memory in tiny parts. And one location of memory actually has an impact of many different data associations. So you can't necessarily query a, a data piece of data at a memory register. However, it enable us to ask questions about the data and gather the information that we need to, in spite of the massive size of the data sets. So this new paradigm is changing the way that we're going to build computers in the future. Real quick. I'll, I'll get through this piece on, on AI and why it's different, and then I'll go back to Intel and why Gelsinger is doing what he's doing, why it's important, and the rest are. So with an artificial intelligence model, there's a bunch of different pieces that a software application needs to run, and it takes a large amount of compute. It's some very custom software and very large sets of GPUs. None of the computer architecture was really designed to do that sort of stuff. We're getting better at it. And a good example of that is NVIDIA's purchase of Mellanox. Mellanox is a producer of uh, data processing units. And essentially, their function with the massive data center is connecting many computers together to make them work. So that piece makes it more uh, feasible to do some of these large-scale models and programs. So thinking through these models and graphs, the equivalent comparison is if you were to manufacture a car by hand in one spot, it would not be a very efficient process, right? Prior to Ford and the assembly, assembly line, that's the way things were done. But essentially, that's the way computers are built right now to run these programs. And the concept is in the future, computers will be designed to be more like an assembly line where the pieces of these AI in an assembly line type fashion so that resources are allocated dynamically to the different parts of the model that are more efficient. So I heard this analogy first, a guy named Jim Keller, who's one of the most uh, prominent chip designers out there. He's responsible for Apple's mobile chips. He's responsible for the AMD chips that are, that are beating out Intel. Uh, he's, he's pretty much responsible for most of the amazing chip designs that have happened in the last couple of decades. When I heard this talk from him on this topic, it reminded me of my operations class in business school and, and, and thinking through it just like manufacturing. And that's really what it comes down to is how are you processing this information where the inputs are the data and the output is whatever you want. Back to Intel. Intel has made their name by building CPUs and making CPUs faster and faster. And over the course of the last decade, a bunch of things have happened around them. This explosion of data, a bunch of new chip designers have developed new solutions that their customers are using to manage and work with big data. I think Gelsinger has come in here realized that Intel, they lost that guy, Jim Keller, because he 
had a dispute with senior leadership. He was basically saying that the, they needed to go and use Tower Semiconductor or some other third party fab in order to continue moving their chip designs at the lead edge. Gelsinger recognizes that, and this move to incorporate additional IP and do other customers' projects is actually the obvious solution because all new processors, new chip designs are done with a bunch of outside library IP. And if, if Intel was not to do that, they wouldn't need to be competitive. The question is, and this is the rub, is will they be able to make this transition to, to service outside customers at a cost-efficient way? And then what about their own design capability? Um, presumably, it'll be easier to recruit designers with Geltinger there. They'll view him as uh, someone who appreciates the design process. But yeah, in one of the interviews with Geltinger, he, he talked about ADM. He said, we're so happy to have ADM in the rearview mirror rather than staring us in the windshield. But I noticed yesterday in one commentary that ADM market value just reached Intel's market value so much for the rearview mirror. AMD, AMD. Yeah. Now, Intel's strategy is to utilize in the interim to stay on the leading edge. And in 2025, there's a confirmed order of two of the C5200 units from ASML at $350 million a pop. There's a rumor that they've actually purchased all of their plan of production for 2025 of those units, which is six. I think it's $1.9 billion order, so they got some sort of discount. If that's true, they will be the only fab that has access to the 1.8 meter technology, and they may have an edge over Taiwan Semiconductor. It's only time from there until Taiwan Semiconductor is able to purchase uh, machines from ASML, but they have a strategy. I wouldn't call it a bad strategy. Actually, it's probably a pretty good strategy, but here's what I think is going to happen in the medium term. I think that a lot of existing shareholders of Intel are there for dividend, they're there for cash flow. And when things start to change, and what, what we are absolutely going to see over the next couple of years is shrinking margins, increased capex, and reduced cash flow. I don't think that their existing shareholder base is going to necessarily stick around. I think there'll be some turnover. So my my perspective is let's keep watching this and wait and see, because I think there'll be a better buy-in opportunity. I was talking to Mike about this, and I said Mike and I are completely devoted to free cash flow after CapEx. And Intel and their CEO is proud of their CapEx. He's you know, he said, this is what needs to be done and the board's behind this and so on and so forth. But more or less promising no free cash flow for three, four, five years from a company that's always had free cash flow and paid dividends and whatnot. Now, they may keep the dividend up because they still have a reasonably strong balance sheet. And some of those capex, they'll get support from the U.S. government. And, you know, I don't know whether it'll be loans or outright grants or defense contracts to buy U.S. made chips only or what the support will be. But I'd say, well, what about Taiwan Semiconductor? They're spending quite a high portion of their cash flow. But Mike made a very good point, which is 
Taiwan Semiconductor is making the CapEx commitments, which are $40 billion. If Intel spent $30 billion, Taiwan Semiconductor is going to spend 40 But as Mike said, they're probably sold out for the next four years on their leading edge chips because their largest customer is Apple. And what Apple and Amazon and Google do is they design their own chips that they need for their for their server farm and then have Taiwan Semiconductor make them. And so Taiwan Intel is spending all this money hoping to be able to provide foundry services for their customers to get down to leading edge chips to have their, their chip designers meet or exceed, you know, whatever AMD or Apple or Amazon or Google are doing on their own. You know, it seems like a tall order where Taiwan Semiconductor, as Mike said, they're probably sold out for the next four years. But with that, over to Mike, and it uh, finishes up there. That, that's exactly right. So when Taiwan Semiconductor plans a fab, they pretty much have guarantees who's who their first cu- customers are going to be, and it covers their capital. So it's far less risky of a business than what Intel is doing. That being said, Intel's doing exactly what they need to do to get back to be relevant in the game. I, but I think it's a, if you build it, they will come theory. And that's never really a good business plan. Uh, but if, you know, sometimes it works. I guess you could say that Facebook's doing the same thing with the metaverse. It's a, they're pumping all the free cash flow into the metaverse. And maybe people will show up and decide they want to use it. Maybe people will decide that they want Intel to make their chips. A lot easier to take the bet on Taiwan Semiconductor, who already has the customers and the relationships. Yeah. And just in closing, one of the things Mike points out, and I just haven't focused on chips long enough. I've never really, other than through Mike's partnership, even owned a chip stock, and that's NVIDIA, and, which kind of up some claim I also found on my own. But the, clip, the, the history of the chip business is overbuilding. So even though the supply is very short now, you know, the, the history is people put in all this CapEx and then there'll be a time when there'll be more supply than there is price. And the kind of, the people you're selling to that Apple's and, and, my, and at Microsoft's and, and Google's and Amazon's and whatnot, these are tough cookies. If they think they can get the equipment to continue to expand their, their cloud computing capacity, these are tough cookies. If they think they can get the chips for less, they're going to. There is, there is, that's just the history of the business. And the longer you go out a year, you got two years, you got three years, the longer you go out, for sure, the probability of having an oversupply of chips. With that, Mike's got to rest up and they, they certainly expect his father, but actually, actually have the event. Josie has, has a, I forget, Mike, is it a brother or a sister coming? Uh, it's a sister. Sisters. So Josie has ah. sisters. So yeah. This this is this is uh, we gotta let we gotta let Mike go back to uh domestic responsibilities here. But we'll talk to you all next Wednesday. In the meantime, uh stay, stay healthy. Take care.
Thank you for joining us this week. Please tune in to us again next week as we'll be back on Wednesday. As a reminder, nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you.